0: hey i 'm Glenn hanna i'm the missions pastor here at Allegheny Center Alliance Church and it is month. what <laughs> that's right it's missions month um, I'm going to call an audible here at the line of scrimmage because uh, I've been trying to get permission to use a particular video that sort of gives us a global view of how missions is happening in, in the world and Uh, We couldn't get the permission and couldn't get it. And then yesterday morning, Allie emailed me and said, we got permission. So I'm inserting it in here. Greg, could you show us that video?
1: In the beginning, God created everything. He created a world full of people to know him and to be known by him. This is the story of the Bible, God bringing people to himself. And when we read the Bible, we see how God went to great lengths to do this and how much God cares about people knowing him. You most likely already know this. And you probably live somewhere where people have a general understanding of this great love story between God and humanity. And if they don't know yet, there's probably somebody in town who can tell them. But did you also know that there are three billion people who will live and die without ever hearing this story? Not because they don't care, but because they don't have a choice. Nobody ever told them that once upon a time, God became a human just like them, so that he could teach them how to know their creator. Forty percent of the world doesn't know this, and they won't know this. Not unless something changes. Not unless someone goes to tell them. Jesus is our wonderful example. He left his natural home to come to us, and then he tells us to do the same thing. Because we love Jesus and care about the same things that he cares about, we care about this. That the whole world would know him. That every tongue, tribe, and people group would come and be able to worship him. So the question is, are we doing this? Going out into the world to bring the gospel to every tongue, tribe, and nation? Well, kind of. While churches do send people out, almost half the world still doesn't have any access to the gospel. But how is this possible? Aren't there people being sent? Well, yeah, there are about 400,000 people serving across the world today. But only 3% of them are actually going to the 40% who have never heard about Jesus. The other 97%, they're going to places that have already heard about Jesus. There's an imbalance. That imbalance? Leaves only one person for each 250,000 people who have never heard about Jesus. Put another way, we have a spirit led calling to rethink our focus. When you look at how we use our resources, such as money, the picture doesn't look that much better. To be specific, Christians around the world are giving about 2% of their income to Christian causes and less than 7% of that is going to cross-cultural workers. And of that cross-cultural giving, only one one-hundredth of that 0.1% is actually going to those working with the three billion people who don't know Jesus, have no church, or any Christian neighbors. The other 99% of all cross-cultural giving goes to the rest of the world that already has Christians, Bibles, and churches. Are you seeing the imbalance? Only 3% of our workers with only 1% of our cross-cultural finances are going to the 3 billion people who have never heard about Jesus. So we have to ask ourselves, are we okay with this? We want those 3 billion people to hear about the kingdom of God and how much God loves them. There are 17,000 ethno-linguistic groups in the world. People who share language, culture, and common history. 7,000 of them are considered unreached people. These are entire cultures who have never heard the amazing story of how Jesus loves them and came to save them. God has called us to pay attention to this, to love and care for the same things that he does. He put this desire on our heart to see the unreached reached with the amazing story of the love of God. We want to see lasting local church planning movements begin among these people groups. That brings renewal and transformation among these cultures and societies. Why? Because God has moved our hearts to see the gospel transform whole societies among the unreached. We know this task is bigger than us. Many of the areas that are in need of the gospel are difficult and resistant places. It isn't something that can be accomplished overnight, but by the power of the Spirit, we endeavor to preach the gospel where Christ is not known, so that God can be worshipped by all peoples. Well, there's a challenge. Uh, there's a reason
0: I wanted to show this to you. Uh, it's all not not all bad news. Um, the fastest expansion of the gospel anywhere on the planet is happening currently in China uh, in terms of volume. but there's also uh, I learned some other news recently, and that is the the actual fastest growing church in the world is in Iran, two places where the, it's most dangerous to be Christian. The gospel is exploding. This is good news that we have. It is wonderful news that we have. But the other good news is this, that even though those stats are true, that 3% of missionaries in total go to the least reached places on earth and less than a one-hundredth of 1% of the finances go to the least reached places on earth. That's not true with the CNMA the vast majority of missionaries sent out by the Christian and Missionary Alliance go to the least-reached places. And the vast majority of the money given to the Great Commission Fund through the um, the Christian and Missionary Alliance go to serve people in the least-reached places on the planet. And so that's a great investment. It's a great return on your investment. That's right. Praise God for that. Well... Our theme for Missions Month is Love is the Heart of Missions. And my sermon title today is The Burden is Love. And you'll find out why in a couple of moments. And the scripture that we want to focus on is this. It's out of John 20, 21, where Jesus said, As the Father has sent me, I also am sending you. Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, I yield myself to you. I know that you've given this word to me, and I know that you have cooked it in my heart for a long time and given me a desire to share this. I pray that you would empower my words. I pray that you would use me as a vessel to speak with these that you love so much. Join us this morning, Lord. Touch our hearts and let us know more about this great love of yours, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And may the Lord be with you. you. So, the theme is uh, The Burden is Love, or the title is The Burden is Love. And why? Uh, Why this theme? So, I'll tell you. The Lord planted this in my heart in January of this year when I was in Colorado Springs at a conference and I was listening to John Stumbo, the president of the Alliance, talk about how. Missions is central to everything that the Christian and Missionary Alliance does. It is and it has always been central to who we are and what we do. And he used as an illustration the fact that Dr. A.B. Simpson, the founder of this denomination, was frequently seen in his office on repeated occasions hugging the globe in his office and praying for hours and weeping weeping over the globe, interceding for people around the world who had no access to this gospel and could not know Jesus just because nobody's there to tell them. And by the way, that's where our logo comes from. Randy Ziegler put that together, and I love it. So it was that that he was talking about, but he made this one statement that really captured my heart. And, I, and it's one of those things, when you know, when God speaks to you and he says, and he, and he stuck it so deep in my heart that uh, I knew he wanted me to talk about this this year. And he said this A.B. Simpson felt a tremendous, constant, and compelling burden for the lost. And the burden was not guilt, it was not duty or obligation, it was love. And so, point one the burden for the unreached people is a burden of love. When we think of missions, what's really the first thing that normally comes to mind? It's duty and obedience, right? Uh, Where it's a command. We've been told to do something. And so the Great Commission is a command. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said, All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So make no mistake, point two, the Great Commission is a command. It's not an option for any of us. And God's commands are meant to be obeyed. But in all honesty, we sometimes have a little trouble following Jesus' commands and obeying Jesus. And there's a reason for that. Until we learn the truth, it feels like his commands are ultimatums. And we don't like ultimatums. It feels like when we're given an ultimatum, we're being forced to do something that we really don't want to do. Like take out the trash. Clean your room. Feed the goldfish. But point number three, God's commands are not ultimatums. They're invitations. They're invitations to participate in something that lies very close to the heart of God. Now think about this. He says to you, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? It's a command. Why does he he do that? Because he loves your neighbor. It's because that's what's in his heart is love. So he commands us to do things that reveal to us something about who he is. They're instructive. They teach us about who he is. So, and they are also invitations to know God and ourselves better. And there are also invitations to fill our lives and our hearts with things of eternal significance rather than the soul-numbing junk food that we get from this world. So I'm sure every year whenever I come out and I enthusiastically say, it's Missions Month, some of you are saying, oh, nuts. (laughs) (laughs) Or you're saying, ah, I'm going to hear again about something I should be doing or something I haven't done or blah, 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 and, uh, or, oh yeah, I forgot. Several years ago, I was talking with Pastor Rock, and I'm the missions pastor, and so we were talking about ways, how can we motivate the church? You know, what are some good things to think about? And and in that conversation, he clearly stated this, that it is his desire that we avoid making people feel guilty. And I agree. Because guilt doesn't motivate us, it drains us, and it disables us. Uh, And obedience grounded in guilt doesn't bring honor to God. And uh, Rock himself has said, if there's no joy in God's servant, then there is no honor for his or her God. So while we do want you to give very generously, I added very generously, and uh, we certainly want you to go if, in fact, God is touching your heart and calling you to go someplace to reach unreached people. We want you to do that, but we never want it to be guilt-driven. That's the wrong motivation. We want your engagement to be something that is birthed in your soul, and it boils up and bubbles up in your soul and reaches every part of your body and then splashes everyone around you, and you can't help but go because you're falling in love with the people that God is telling you to go serve. So we want you to engage because of love. And so point four, when we act out of love, we are acting like God. That's an important thing. That's what God does. So what is it that motivated this great, magnificent, eternally living God to do the most outrageous thing that's ever been done in the history of the universe, which is to choose to die... In place of you to take his eternal life and put himself at risk and to suffer for your temporal life it doesn't make sense that's a poor equation that's a bad deal it's a bad deal for him it's a great deal for us but it's a really bad deal for him it's not reasonable it's not something that came out of his brain It's not a good business deal. He wouldn't do it. You wouldn't do it. Nobody would do it. So, where did it come from? It came from his love, it's his magnificent heart. And we cannot comprehend the infinite love of God because our brains are too little and our hearts are too little. He's too big. And we cannot comprehend that he can never stop loving us because he is God. Everything he is and everything he does is love. And we can't even adequately define love. We can talk about it. We can list its attributes. We can mention its consequences. And we can describe its feelings and behaviors. And we can even mourn its absence. But there is no adequate human definition of love. The Bible doesn't even really give us a definition of love. It gives us a chapter talking about love. And there's a reason for this. 1 John chapter 4 verse 8 tells us very clearly that God is love. God is love. And God is beyond any definition. And since God is beyond any definition, Love is beyond any definition. It is bigger than we can apprehend. So he is above our capacity to comprehend him. And so therefore also love is beyond our capacity to comprehend him. So what does he do? He knows this. He knows how weak and how unintelligent we are. So he illustrates various, various aspects of love by telling us parables and stories and giving us metaphors. And as a matter of fact, the truth is that the entire Bible, from in the beginning to amen, is a description of God. It's, a, it's everything we need to know about God. It's everything we can know about God. It's everything that we are supposed to know about God. But it's also everything that we know about love. And so the Bible itself, it took the whole Bible to tell us about God's love. It tells us about his nature, his values, his passions, his actions, and even his hatreds. And so, through metaphors, point five, God tells us his divine love is superior to that of a nursing mother. Wow. Isaiah forty nine fifteen says this. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget... I will never forget you. Human mothers can fail us. Human mothers can forget us. Some of you know that. But God will never forget us. He cannot forget us. It's not possible. Point six God tells us his divine love is superior to that of a loving father. You all know the parable of the prodigal son, Luke 15. You're familiar with this father whose love is so constant and steadfast and unmoving that he stands waiting for his straying son to come back and welcomes his straying son back. But even human fathers, even loving human fathers can grow weary when their children despise them or when they stand up and curse them to their face. But that's never the case with God. He is always watching for the prodigal to return. But there's a metaphor that I want to focus on today, and it is the metaphor of the lover. So I'm going to make you uncomfortable. It's found in a biblical book that very few people quote, and no Sunday school teacher ever teaches from. (laughs) It's the Song of Solomon. Now, the Song of Solomon is a peculiar book, to say the least. The first time you read your Bible, maybe as a young Christian, you think, I'm going to start at Genesis and run. And so you start reading Genesis and you're reading history and all about God and what he does and his covenants and stuff. And then you read the Psalms and the poetic books and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and then BAM! Right there, for no apparent reason... You find yourself reading a book of erotic poetry. Really? It seems weirdly out of place. And you have to admit it, it does. The first time I read the Song of Solomon, I was a brand new Christian, right out of college, single man. I was shocked. I was trying hard not to sin. Trying to control my thought life. And I found myself reading this erotic book that was making me think the very thoughts I was trying hard not to think. <laughs> this book has no discussion at all about the law. It has no discussion at all about the covenants. It has no discussion at all even about God himself. It doesn't mention God. There's no wisdom, no reasoning. It's just sexual desire and ecstatic love. Why? Why? This is something that theologians have been struggling with for thousands of years, both Jewish and Christian. It certainly is a celebration of sexual love and enjoyment within a covenant marriage. It certainly is that. That's what it is on the face. And Jewish theologians have always said, well, no, this is a picture also of God and Israel. And Christian theologians say, well, no, this is a picture of Christ and his bride. And it is. And since it's included in the Bible, it is a sacred book. It's a sacred text. It is inspired by God. And it is perfect. It is inerrant. And it's supposed to be there. It must also, therefore, tell us something about God himself. It has to. J. Vernon McGee called it the holy of holies of the entire Bible. Because it gives us a picture of something that we don't see elsewhere. The Song of Solomon portrays God's love and passion in terms that we can understand. Every single one of us knows Or at least we can imagine what it would be like to be overwhelmingly consumed with the feeling of being deeply in love. Those of us who aren't, wish we were. And God is in love with you. He's in love with you. Point seven, Song of Solomon portrays God as a passionate, loving husband. And now I'm going to put on my best sultry voice here. I'm going to try to read this in a way. (laughs) Excuse me, please. I'm going to read Song of Solomon 4, 7 and 9 through 11. And just listen. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. You have ravished my heart, my sister, my bride. You've ravished my heart with the one glance of your eye, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine. And the fragrance of your oils than any spice, your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue, and the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. This husband is enamored with every aspect and every detail of his wife. He's in love. He is smitten, and he is drunk with desire. Now, this may be making some of you uncomfortable. But God uses this erotic language to describe his love for you for us. He does. And you really can't get around it. And it's not because it is a sexual or a physical love. We know it's not. He uses it because this enamored, passionate marital love is the closest thing on earth that we can experience that approximates, even in a small way, the passionate love of God for you. Think about that. He's in love with you. This hungry and longing love moved him to sacrifice his son for you. We've been misled by dusty old theologians, some of them, who have tried to tell us somehow that God's love is a legal love. He passes judgment and he pays the penalty and now you're saved, or you have the option of being saved, and if you accept my offer of forgiveness, I'll love you. If you don't, no no big deal, it's lost. Never is that true. Never is that true. The thought is that God could somehow pretend to love you, or act like he loves you without having any feelings that somehow his love is somehow divorced from his passionate longing for you it is not have you ever heard somebody say this I love you but I don't like you maybe you have said it I used to hear it all the time at home and I think there was good reason for it I'm not very likable at least that's what I, they led me to believe So so I want you to think about something. Tim, how would you like it? You're in your prayer closet in the morning and you're praying. And you're feeling close to God. And you feel in your sense in your heart that still small voice. And you know it's God talking to you. And he said, Tim, I love you. But I sure don't like you. (laughs) Matter of fact, I can't stand you. I'm sick of you. God never says that. It never occurs to him. It cannot occur to him. Those statements reduce love to either a generous act or a kind act devoid of affection, and that is never the case with our Savior. He is always ever in love with you. The Song of Solomon shows that that this aching, for you with a longing and passion that moved him to pay the highest price ever paid for anything anywhere in the entire universe and he became a servant to you and died for the sake of you his beloved point 8 his beloved is you but his beloved is also every other person on the planet john 316 tells us god so loved the world That he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And he said this before whosoever responded. He loved you before you responded. He loved you before the beginning and the foundation of the earth. This is how the Father sent Christ, out of his great love. Out of his great passionate longing, his breathless, aching love for his alienated bride, the love of a husband's ravished and captivated heart. And Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And he said this, greater love has no man than that he laid down his life for his friends. The Great Commission is not some cold command to do the uncomfortable or the unreasonable or the bothersome. Point nine, the Great Commission is an invitation to love as deeply and as passionately as Christ himself. To love as deeply and passionately as it is possible to live love on this earth. To love others with the self-sacrificial abandonment of a lover rescuing from eternal peril, the one he does not want to live without. God couldn't stand the thought of living eternally without you. And so he gave his own life for you. A.B. Simpson knew this passion, and this is why he would weep for hours over the globe embracing the globe and with longing and interceding for those who had no access to this great love. point 10. owning and embracing god's passions will outlast eternity. embracing god's highest calling and that is it the great commission His greatest challenge of going or sending missionaries is a passion that grows year after year. And why is that? Because as we grow in our love and our faith and our understanding of who God is, we learn to love the things that he loves. And the passion and the love within our own hearts grows. And we long for the things that he longs for. It grows as we grow. And we want everyone to know this love. And it becomes ever more exhilarating in our own lives as we pursue the things that are closest to the heart of Christ. After all, this is how he lived his life. This is how Jesus lived his life and he's our example. Point 11, God invented passion. He did. If he didn't invent it, it wouldn't be here. If it wasn't in his own heart, he wouldn't have invented it. The fact that we can be passionate about something is reflective of the nature of who God is. If you want to live like God, live passionately. Care passionately. Pursuit of everything in this world except God eventually stales and molders, and everything in this world is subject to entropy. Every brand new car is gonna grow old and be forgotten. Every building that we build is gonna tumble and be forgotten. Every empire is gonna collapse and be forgotten. But everything done in faithful obedience to our God will be celebrated throughout all eternity. Amen. Amen. Only what we do that magnifies God will last. And so, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to embrace this, the last commandment of God, of Christ, before he ascended. The thing that was dearest to his heart. That you would carry this gospel around the world to all those that he loves so passionately. He loves just as much as he loves you but have no possibility of ever hearing it. I challenge you to live beyond the edges of your capacities, to live beyond what you think is normal, to let God ruin your life for the normal, and to live an outstanding life. Now, you've heard me say, I love this church, and boy, I love this church. And I brag about this church. I get to go around the country, and actually around the globe, And everywhere I go, people know of ACAC. That's the truth. And people introduce me. They say, this is Glenn. He's from ACAC. And people are amazed. They say, oh, really? You're from ACAC? And there's a reason for this because your hearts are so big. We give a million dollars a year, over a million dollars. And there's money we don't even know about. But over a million dollars a year to missions, to reach people around this globe because your hearts are so engaged thank you. God thanks you. I thank you. But I do want to say this also, and you know I'm not guilting you because Rock said I'm not allowed. (laughs) Right? So this isn't guilt-driven at all. And so just wear it for what it is. Uh, Only about 60% of the regular givers to this church give to missions. And yet that 60% is giving a million bucks. And so my challenge to you is the easiest way for you to engage the Great Commission, the easiest way is for you to reach in your wallet and make it possible for someone else to go and carry this news to people that will perish and, and suffer eternally because they haven't heard this great news of this great gospel. I'd like, to, I'd like to know that everybody in this church, and we don't know who you are. We don't know who gives what. I'd like to know that everybody in this church is so deeply in love with God's commission, great commission, that they're supporting it. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I know you birthed this in my heart almost a year ago. And that you wanted to have me communicate your passionate, loving, intense desire for each and every one of us. I pray that everybody here will know how deeply loved they are and will even sense now your presence. And I pray, Lord, that you will move on us, enable us to be all that you call us to be. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.